You're listening to the eFree Lethbridge Podcast. Good morning. I'd like to welcome those of you in the worship center, those of you in the gymnasium, and those online. Before we look at God's mute, uh, word this morning, I have a, a terrific announcement, I think. Uh, this week, encouraged and empowered by the board, I had coffee with Tim Syme, uh, Pastor Tim Syme, about becoming the new part-time pastor to seniors along with his wife, Lynn. <laughs> you don't know if he said yes or not. Man. But he has agreed to lead this important ministry with others whom he will recruit. Tim and Lynn have decades of ministry experience, not to mention 20 years of experience in this church before Pastor Ian came. And then he took on the role of a district superintendent for the following 19 before retiring. So we have a seasoned, obviously well-known pastoral couple who are coming out of retirement to serve this church, officially beginning on January 3rd. I want you to just... This is exciting. I want you to just put it in perspective a little bit and think about what happened this week. There are people in our congregation who are cynical about EFRI and our future. Others who think that they'll just kind of hang back and see what happens before they kick in and get involved. You might be able to name some or might be some who are named. But here we have a former pastor of this church who, along with Pastor Dave Acree and Pastor Ian Lawson, attend here still. And Tim comes with 19 years of experience within the Efree district, which means 19 years of dealing with problems. <laughs> it does. And yet he decides to not only come back here, but become a member and wades into the water and commits to a ministry position. Why? Because this is a good church with a great future. Amen? Amen. Amen. I feel like I had a little bit of Luke Watson taking a hold of me this morning. I'm not sure what. He's in the gym. I hope he's laughing. I don't know. <laughs> Having Tim join our staff has exponentially increased our staff strength today. So we can be grateful to that. I'd like, I don't know where Tim and Lynn are, but I would invite them to stand so we can welcome them to staff. And now what I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah again. This time chapter one, verses 10 to 20, I invite you to stand and we'll read those verses together. Isaiah 1, 10 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are you multiplying sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, rams, or bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. 
New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the widow. Plead for the, the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you choose to consent and obey, you will eat the best fruit of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is the word of God. Please be seated. It was in 1955 that the group The Platters wrote a song whose lyrics were written in the Flamingo Hotel bathroom in Las Vegas. Despite its odd place of origin, the song became a national hit with an 11-week run as number one. The song was entitled, The Great Pretender. Some of the lyrics read, Oh yes, I'm the great pretender, pretending that I'm doing well. My need is such, I pretend so much, I'm lonely and no one can tell. Oh yes, I'm the great pretender, adrift in the world of my own. I've played the game to my real shame. Um, you've left me to grieve all alone. Too real is this feeling of make-believe. Too real when I feel what I cannot conceal. Obviously, this song re- registered with people. And it's really a song about a broken heart battling a stiff upper lip, unwilling to admit that something is wrong in your heart and so pretending that everything is fine. What can happen in our hearts relationally, which is what this song talks about, can also happen in our hearts spiritually so that the sobering reality is that our relationship with God in Christ can be carried on as religious observance that is merely pretending. That how we act on the outside has nothing to do with what is inside. That our worshiping observance does not reflect the spiritual state of our souls. We're just going through the motions in order to appear well before others because it's our habit. Church attendance and participation is expected. Perhaps behaving like great religious pretenders fooling everyone but ourselves, and of course God, we ought not forget him and all of this religious stuff. And in the text that we read, God through Isaiah shows us two ways in which outward religious show can be used to cover up an inward religious or spiritual sham. In other words, two ways in which we can be religious pretenders covering up a sin-filled heart and a failing relationship with God. To see the first way that outward religious activity can be used to cover up an inward spiritual sham, we need to understand something about the Old Testament sacrificial system. Context is key, 
Because of lo- a lot of what God describes in terms of religious activities are sacrifices. And what is important to understand about these sacrifices is not the way that God saw them as a means to cover over the sin of the people, but the way that the people thought about them. Popular thinking at the time was that offering a sacrifice on the one hand and the sacrifice that is offered on the other could actually become one. They could interchange if proper procedures were followed. In other words, the sacrifice would become the person who offered it so that the animal who literally died would be the person who would figuratively die and the person would leave the temple not having their sin covered by the blood of a lamb but actually clean and forgiven. But the first way in which religious activity can be used to cover up an inward religious sham is when people use religious activities like sacrifices as a substitute for inner heart change. And what Isaiah's, the people in Isaiah's time thought is that a sacrifice properly offered, well, that was good enough. And there was no perceived need for repentance to follow that. All that was necessary is for the proper procedure to be followed. So the people would give careful attention to the right type and the right number of sacrifices in order that they could then live and think and feel however they pleased afterwards. Like the practice of meaningless uh, penance or the past practice of purchasing indulgences in advance of your sins so that whatever you did would be forgiven, religious ceremony and sacrifice was offered to God as a means to try to, to manipulate him, to appease his anger, to get his guilt off their backs, to kind of try and stay the hand of his punishment so that they could then live however they pleased. They were great pretenders at being spiritually devout. You may recall in Psalm 51, we have the, the record of David's confession of his sin of adultery to God. And one of the things that comes out of, that, out of that prayer is that David has a significant contrast between outer, outer sacrificial observance and inner spiritual change. He says in verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost place. And then in verse 16, he says, you do not delight in sacrifices, otherwise I would offer them. You were not pleased with burnt offering. Instead, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. It was not the animal sacrifices that God primarily desired, even though the blood of the sacrifice covered the sin of the person. What God was primarily after and he had a passionate desire for was inner heart change, truth in the innermost place, contrition, which is sorrow for the sin that we have committed against him. Heart and spirit are both the centers, the control centers of our spiritual lives. That is where the forgiveness and change that pleases God takes place. And whereas a sacrifice might cover the sin in the eyes of God, Repentance would bring about forgiveness and transformation. Now the people 
the people to whom Isaiah wrote were not the first, nor would they be the last, to try and fool God. They were not the last to be pretending to be pious while intending to sin. For example, I, I hope that there's no one in the room who's ever offered an animal sacrifice as a means of forgiving your own sins, but we can, we can use religious activities as a hypocritical means to cover up the fact that nothing is changing within our lives. In fact, to cover up the fact that we have no intention of changing anything in our lives, and we are going to live however we please, despite the outward religious show that we so effectively parade. We could be as big a pretenders as they were. You might be nursing bitterness, hatred, jealousy, anger towards another person or another group, but show up for worship one out of three Sundays and shake hands in the foyer with the best of them. You might have a foul mouth during the week, which is an indication of a foul heart, but will come to church on Sunday and sing praises with the best of them. And no one really knows the hypocrisy that we can hide in our hearts. In fact, we might think that we've got so good at it that we've even fooled God, that we are a really great pretender. But God has seen this sort of behavior before. And in the case of the text that we read today, he has Isaiah the prophet call the people in on the carpet for doing this on the hypocrisy of using observable, even prescribed sacrifices as a means to shield abundantly sinful hearts. It's interesting to look at the religious activities that he takes exception with, how he names them and how he responds to them. For example, in verse 11, as God speaks of their, their personal worship, which would be them bringing their personal sacrifices to him, he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? That's a rhetorical question, meaning they're not much. I've had enough of the burnt offerings of the rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the, the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. He goes on from personal worship to talk about corporate worship. Services, festivals, new moon Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies. He says in verse 14, I hate your new moon festivals and appointed feasts. He, and then he goes on and he talks about their private and public prayer times. So when you spread your hands out in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. So it appears as if endless rounds of spiritual but truly meaningless activities have a very negative effect on God's perception of these worshipers. That all that they were doing was wearying and frustrating and angering God. He's tired of the sham. Stop bringing offerings. Stop the services. Stop your prayers. Because it's not touching anywhere inside of you. It might be troubling, hey? I mean, we're talking about worship here. We're talking about church services here, other services here. Since when is God weary of people who worship him? 
Well, when the practice of worship is meaningless, when it's rote, rotten underneath, when it is superficial and made to look good so that we can feel good about ourselves while we determine to live however we please, that's when he wearies of it and doesn't want it anymore. So that's the first way. The second way that the Israelites were using religious activity to cover up a spiritual sham is that they used worship activities as a substitute for exercising justice and compassion, offering up sacrifices in in place of their duty to pursue justice. Later in the latter part of verse 16, Isaiah lays out in these curt but sweeping statements what is required of them as his people. He says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. That's heart change there. And then he says, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. So they were using these spiritual activities first as a means to avoid heart change and second as a substitute for outer caring. Pursuing justice, reproving the ruthless, caring for those who have needs. Now again, Isaiah's day wasn't the first, nor would it be the last that he would see this. He might see it among us. We might tithe faithfully while ignoring the needs of the destitute around us, and there are a lot of them in Lethbridge. We could be leading we could be leading worship, we could be preaching, we could be on a, uh, on a ministry team, we could be volunteering with any of our ministries while allowing bullying and prejudice power plays to go unchallenged at school or at work. Maybe we know people who are being manipulated, emotionally abused, threatened with unfounded legal action, but rather than do something, we head to another worship experience. Not because worship is bad, but because it can become a handy excuse for not caring for the destitute, informing victims of their rights. Now this might give us the impression, if we're not careful, that social justice justifies us before God. That's a common sentiment. It's just not true. They don't have the, it doesn't have the power to forgive and cleanse. It's just not biblical. But they are undeniably an essential expression of the heart of God. But even as such, they do not purify our hearts. Psalm 51, again, we noticed that David's, it was David's confession and sorrow for sin, a broken and a contrite heart, admitting sin and asking for forgiveness that purifies us in the eyes of God. And what you will find is that the more your heart is purified, the more you express loving acts of compassion that are a reflection of his heart. I want to drop a footnote here just for a second. Um, There are a lot of characteristics of God, but one of them is primary, and it's holiness. You remember the the story of Isaiah when the heavens opened up and the angels were not saying, love, love, love. They were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Therefore, holiness is the controlling attribute of God 
that controls love and controls justice and the other attributes that we know of. So, because our love that we are going to express to others mirrors the holiness of God, it means that our love, in our love for others, it might not mean permission to live however they please. Because loving people and giving them permission to live however they please are not always the same thing. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that loving God on behalf of a holy God will allow them to live however they please. This is not a holy love for people. Rather, it is at times misguided permission by Satan propagated as the love of God. Because when you think about it, if you allow someone to continue in sin, knowing that judgment is coming, whether it's as a result of, like, consequential, or that it will come in final judgment because you say that you are loving them with God's love, pray tell, how, like, what kind of love is that? I'll tell you. It's the kind of love, it's the kind of permission Masquerading is, is love that would clap for your children as they're playing in a busy intersection during rush hour because they're happy there. It's the kind of permission masquerading is love that would cheer while pulling a water skier behind a boat without a personal flotation device because they're just so cumbersome. It's really not who they are. If your creed is that you want to love God and love people. Please do so biblically, passionately, and intelligently. By personally loving God, by staying in a right relationship with him and serving others, and if you really love people, you'll be passionate about bringing them into a holy relationship with God as well, not a permissively sinful one that you just kind of pass over. So where you can... And you can stop the diabolical foolishness that confuses God's love for people with granting them permission to live however they please, to live sinfully. End of footnote. Isaiah has shown us that we can use outward expressions of worship as a means to cover up an inward spiritual sham. He has shown us that we can substitute outward works of worship for times when we should be loving people, truly loving people, fighting for justice, defending those who cannot defend themselves, but never forgetting that we are loving them as an expression of the holy heart of God and should therefore never passively or aggressively encourage sin against him. Whether intentional or not, those in Isaiah's time were using worship to shield against heart transformation and against the outer application of ministering to other people, pretending. But one thing about pretenders is that they will always be found out. One of the great pretenders of the last century was Frank Abagnale, who during his life pretended to be an airline pilot managing to steal a Pan Am uniform 
in forging a Federal Aviation Administration pilot's license. He noticed that car rental companies like Hertz would drop their money in zip bags in drop boxes. And so he stole a security guard's uniform and put up a sign that said, drop box closed, please leave money with the security guard. And people did. <laughs> drop boxes are never closed. By the way, we have one out there. <laughs> so I don't even care if it's, if it's me that shows up with a security guard uniform on. It's not closed. But he got away with it. Later, he posed as a teaching assistant at Brigham Young University in their sociology department for a semester, a claim which the university disputes and what university wouldn't. He posed as a chief resident pediatrician, faking his way through his duties by having the subordinates do them. Then he pretended to be a lawyer, forging a Harvard University law degree certificate, and then passing the, the bar exam on the third try. Eventually, he got caught. We always do. He served time in jail in France, Sweden, United States, became a believer, helped the US government in this kind of stuff. If you've seen the movie based on his life, Catch Me If You Can, you will notice that he personally came to the point often in which he wanted to be caught. He was tired of pretending, and often, at least as the movie portrays it, it was on Christmas Eve when he would phone the guy who he knew was chasing him down and they would have a conversation because he just was so lonely and wanted to get caught and was tired of pretending. Perhaps you're tired of pretending that you've got a great relationship with God when you really don't and you want to get caught to somehow come clean. And you know what, if you're pretending today, you are already caught. God knows if you're using worship as a means to shield your heart from change, as a substitute for ministering his holy love to other people. God knows it. And if we are doing these things today, God calls us on the carpet today as he did those in Isaiah's day to give us the same two choices that he gave to the Jews in Judah. I'll start with the second choice in verse 20, which explains what will happen if there is not inner heart change. He says, if you refuse, you will be devoured by the sword. Choice number one is that judgment will come. In Judah's day, as we looked at last week, it came in the form of war. In our in our time as we're living, I don't know what form that will take. I understand that hypocrisy can take a major toll on mental health, that it robs one of spiritual power, that it makes you hesitant to witness for truth because you're just not living it. And then there is the shadow of standing before God with our hearts and actions and motives fully, fully seen. Judgment. And I suppose that God could have left his people there and could leave us there. You're misusing worship. You're pretending to worship me even though your heart could not be further from me. I'm just going to let the axe fall. Period. But instead, 
He gave them and he gives us a radically different choice of how to respond to a guilty verdict. We can choose judgment, but I don't know who would or why. Or we can respond to what I believe is one of the greatest invitations to peace in the entire Bible. In verse 18. Come now, let us reason together. You know what that is? That's an invitation to the table for peace talks. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That is the most remarkable and gracious invitation to peace. It speaks of God's amazing forgiveness. The amazement to me comes in the two images that he uses to describe the nature of the transformation that he's offering. Scarlet sin becoming white as snow. Crimson sin becoming like wool. And the remarkable power of that for me is that neither one of them are made that way by bleaching. You cannot do it. You cannot change it. Therefore, the offer that God is giving is of receiving a new heart a purified nature. So rather than punishment, God offers us peace, a new and transformed inner nature that will lead to a holy love for others. No more pretending, no more duplicity, a heart of worship and service integrated into one by the forgiveness of God. And on this second Sunday of Advent, we celebrate the coming to earth of Jesus Christ to make good on God's promise of peace rather than punishment for those who choose it. That Jesus came as a prophesied and pronounced Prince of Peace as the perfect sacrifice who would take our sins that was scarlet and crimson upon himself. And rather than covering it as a sheep would do, he died for it in our place. He paid the price once and for all that we might have a right relationship of God, a relationship of peace. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might be made right with God through Christ. In the beginning of Romans chapter 5, it tells us that because of what Jesus did, we have peace with God. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, was also the provider of peace. And we're going to remember him today at the table. And so I would invite Jeremy in the worship center and Luke in the gym to come and lead us in the remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice that purchased our peace. Thanks for listening to the E-Free Lethbridge podcast. We'll see you next week.